I'm going to read the Bible for us now. It'll be on the screen behind me. We're reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 to 21. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Do grab the service outline. It has the talk outline uh, as well for you to follow along with if that's helpful. Um, Always good to get that. My name's Luke. I'm really glad you're here today. Uh, We get to open up God's Word together. Uh, We get to sing, pray, and be God's people. So do stay for some coffee, get to know one another and encourage each other to keep going on in Jesus. I'm sure if, you have, if you're a youngest child, this pain is probably felt very real for you. You watch your older brother go to the movies, well, you have to stay home because you're not old enough yet. Or you've watched your sister go to Teacher Plaza with her friends, Well, you have to go food shopping with Dad because you're not quite mature enough to do it all on your own, are you? And if you're a younger sibling, that pain is real and it haunts you for the rest of your life. If you're an older sibling, well, you're whinging and get over it because you have far more privilege than what I ever did. But the struggle for maturity follows us into adulthood too, doesn't it? Because I'm sure some of you can relate to the pain of not being mature enough in a job interview to get the job that you want. Ever felt the sting of being overlooked because I haven't got that experience yet? Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you can't find, if you're looking for someone at work, you can't find that mature person you need to replace someone else with. I can't find the mature tradie or the manager that fits that description. Maturity is just gone and lacking, isn't it? But maturity is in high demand. And it's the same for the church as well. We see, you see, we want to see people that are mature in the faith, that love Jesus more and more. And that's exactly what these seven short verses are all about today. And from them, I see two ways that God encourages us, helps us to mature. He gives us people to look to, that's verse 13, uh, 15 to 19, and a person to wait for, that's 20 and 21. God gives us people to look to, and a person to wait for. And the big idea is this. Let's look at where we're headed, so let's keep maturing. Look at where we are heading to, so let's keep maturing. So look at verse 15 and 16 with me. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. First thing to say about maturity is that It's the process that God is using to make us more like Jesus, which begins with his saving grace. 
So prior to saying this, as we've been tracking through Philippians so far, Paul makes the point that he's pressing on to know Jesus more. That because Jesus has taken hold of him, he wants to take hold of Jesus and run that race all the way to the end, to become more like Jesus. He wants the goal of his faith, which is the resurrection of his body and heaven. And he presses on for that. And that's what he means by saying, should take such a view of things. A view to mature by knowing Jesus more and more. That's what it means to mature. A few years ago, we went to a winery, and this particular winery only opens up on one weekend of the year, and it's one of our favorite places to go. And we've got to know the winemaker quite well. We've been there a lot, and he let us have some wine from the big silver vat that was about three weeks old, and he just opened up the tap and poured a bit out. And it tasted horrible. It was three weeks old. The flavor was not developed. You could, you could get a taste that, yeah, that's, I can see it's going somewhere good, but it wasn't quite good enough yet. The flavors were small, underdeveloped. And then he gave us some of the wine that was five years longer in the process. And gosh, you could taste the difference. It wasn't that anything new was added, it's just the flavor that was there at the start had matured over that time and it really came out. The wine matured into the flavors that were already there. And so too, Christian maturity is a bit like that. We mature into the grace of God more and more. We, we begin by the grace of God and we go on maturing into that more and more. We don't find something new. There can be no other way. Which is why Paul says, if you think differently on some point, God will make it clear to you. His point is that God's actually really interested in you. God's really interested in your wonder and awe of Jesus and maturing you in that, and sometimes we might forget it. We might think maturity is about biblical literacy and how much we know. And while that helps, maturity is actually about just wanting to know Jesus more and more and His grace. We may think maturity is about time. Well, I've only been a Christian for a month, or I've been a Christian 55 years, you know. But reaching an age has little to do with amazement and wonder at God through Christ. Maturity is simply growing into the grace that's there from our salvation and being in awe of that day after day after day. Maturity is also recognizing that you have made progress too. At the same time you're becoming, look out for the winds along the way. So in 3.16, Paul says, let us live up to what we have already attained. I think this is really tricky because sometimes it feels like we've not made any progress. It feels like everyone else is maturing in the church, but it's just me, I'm stuck in this spot. Have you ever felt that way? looked around and see other people growing and you don't feel like you're doing much? Well, consider this. Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, God kept history moving along. He didn't start again, right? The future home that Meredith reminded us about in the All Ages talk isn't just, isn't just a return to Eden. It's actually going to be better than that. The incarnate, glorified, risen Jesus will be central to that. His kingdom will overflow, not just into a little space in the world, but into all of creation, every centimeter of the earth, not just a garden. And it's in history that God chooses to make himself known more fully to us. Which means your life right now impacts that future. First of all, in your salvation, but also in that godliness and maturity is like investing into that glorious future making progress, living up to what we've attained is part of the concrete hope that Jesus gives us here and now. 
I am safe now. I'm secured by his grace. Given the Spirit, God's change agenda for my life is underway day by day. God's very interested in that. But you're also like that wine I had that was three weeks old. You're not really mature yet. And even after 50 years, you're still not really mature. But by God's grace, you're making progress. Maturity is recognizing that you can and will make progress in the Christian life. Yes, God is interested in that. And he'll bring that to completion on the day of Christ. Look for the wins and celebrate that with others. Next, maturity is following the example of other mature people. And that's very significant in a few ways. Firstly, God reveals himself as a person, so we should not be surprised that people can serve as special, special important forms of revelation, right? Consider the incarnation of Jesus. Secondly, God's word is the way that God reveals his nature and character and mission to us in an ongoing way. So the psalm writer can say, your word is a, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. And thirdly, God reveals himself with other human people as well, who love Jesus to bits. God uses his people to show us what it's like to follow Jesus, what it's like to work out your salvation in any given situation. And this is where verse 17 comes in. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes so you live as we do. You see, it's God's wisdom and plan to give us other Christians to look to and model. And given that God reveals himself through his word, through his son as a person that follows, that God uses human relationships to help us become more like Jesus as well. Which means maturity, mature models to look for, are actually found right here in the community. Both men and women, we learn from one another about how to follow Jesus along the road of life. And some of us have more of that figured out than others. And we look to them and we say, gee, that's what it looks like to parent kids who love Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a Christian at work. That's what it looks like to pray, to read, to think. That's what it looks like, and I'm going to imitate that. Because some people are excellent examples of godliness. And some people, not so much. Because Paul's next point is that negative examples are still examples. Listen to verse 18 and 19. For as often as I've told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, to say an enemy of the cross, Paul is saying that these people reject all that the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes, stands for, on the cross. It is, as the last phrase says, to have your mind set on earthly things, a mind that's abandoned the joy, the love, the knowledge of Jesus. Now, love and mind are probably not going to be the topic and the theme of the next Netflix uh, hit. You cannot really imagine a love story where the boy says to the girl, I love you with all my mind. It doesn't quite sound you know, impactful enough. But you see, that mind and love are not so divided for the Christian. You see, in thinking properly, we learn to live properly, and thus to glorify God and love him more. And so Paul describes how some people are examples of pursuing a destiny, a God, a future, a glory that is not found in the cross of Jesus. A destiny that does not lead to a happily ever after, but it ends in destruction. A God that is not transcendent, holy, glorious, sovereign, but is simply governed by the groaning of your stomach and desires. 
and a glory that's not beautiful or wonderful or holy, but is found in shame. It is a mind consumed only with earthly things or with here and now living, that's it. And moreover, these people were once close to Paul, were once known in the church as well, except they're now saying one thing and they're living another way. If you track all of the different sorts of people Paul talks about in the Philippians letter, these people are not, um, they're not evil, they're not horrible. They're actually those who profess love for Jesus but live a different way. This week I had a chance to go to a high school and speak to some Year 12 students on a panel. And one of the questions they asked was, how do you deal with people that are hypocrites? That's a good question. What would you say? I had one minute to answer that, so I said that Judas betrayed Jesus. And the other 11 disciples didn't walk away from Jesus because of Judas, did they? They saw in Jesus something wonderful and beautiful and worth following, and they didn't see that in Judas. They saw him not act as a Jesus follower, and that just pushed them closer to the real Jesus. And so sometimes hypocrisy can actually push you closer to the real Jesus, not further away. Because in the same way that some, maybe this is you, some websites are illegitimate, they try to scam you, that's their whole purpose, they only work because there's genuine ones. If there was no genuine ones, there would be no false ones either to copy. And so Paul calls out this behavior of these people, the glory, the God, the destiny, that will not lead to a flourishing life, a mindset only on here and now living. But the key thing in this is how Paul feels about it. Did you notice? Something's tugging on his heart deeply. I've told you before, with tears in my eyes, he's grieved to bits. It's horrible to see people abandon the love, the joy of Jesus. When Jesus and Paul looked around and saw people distracted, filled with hurry, worry, busy, without the hope of a new creation, saying that I love Jesus but not actually living with the hope of Jesus, they didn't shame them or abuse them or laugh at them. They were grieved. In Matthew 23, Jesus denounces the religious leaders for, for leading people away from God. Then he looks at the city and he says, Oh, I wish, I wish I could gather you up. He's deeply grieved, and here Paul cries out to see people like that as well. But the good thing is, this isn't the Philippian church. And I'm confident that this isn't you here, Trinity Church Golden Grove. This is not you. Keep going. Tears in my eyes are tears of joy for you, not pain. So keep going. Don't breathe in this air for spiritual vitality. It won't work. Just cry your eyes out when you see people away from Jesus. And keep your eyes on those who love Jesus to bits and want to know him more. Keep going. Imagine, if you will, that knowing God is like climbing the mighty Anstey's Hill. We don't really have any bigger hills around, so it has to work. And you get out the car park. And you start walking, you go up. And if you've climbed Anstey's Hill, it's not just one hill, it's lots of them. And you get to the first little peak, and you look over, and you catch your breath, and you look back, and you say, wow, look at the car down there, it's so far away, look how far I've come. Let us live up to what we've attained by God's grace, because Paul would say, look back at God's kindness to you. And then you look forward, and you see there's another small hill, because it's Anstey's Hill. And you say, there's another peak to climb, so I'm going to keep going. But you realize that no matter how much ground you cover... 
This is why my illustration falls down. No matter how much ground you cover, you will never, ever, ever stand on the peak and say, I'm done. There is only ever more of God to discover and more wonder and more awe and more grace to find as you climb further and further and further. Maturity is looking at those further ahead who will help you navigate that rocky path. Maturity is nothing less than wonder and awe at where you're headed to. But there's one more thing to be said. Christian maturity is to focus your mind on the person we wait for and the place we belong to. Rather than being earthly-minded, we delight to think of, to see, to imagine, to look forward to, to long for the joy of what Jesus will do when he returns. And in verse 20, Paul shows a contrast with the word but. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, once remarked that if you visit someone's home from a different country or even interstate, you'll often find in their home a newspaper or journal or book from their homeland. It could be a different language, it could be a book about that place, but you'll find something. And then he goes on to say this, the book, the Bible, is the newspaper of heaven. The sermons that are preached are good news from a far country. The songs we sing are notes by which we tell our Father our welfare and by which he whispers into our soul his continued love to us. After all, we are citizens of heaven. The Bible is the newspaper of heaven. And what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven then? Well, firstly, citizens of heaven await a glorious future. The location is heaven. This is the place we belong to. We've been moving house this week for the third time in only ever a few months, and when you know you have to leave, everything changes. And you live differently, you pack things, you get ready to move, you realize you don't need that, you've got five of them, you pack, prepare, you throw it, you live as if this is no longer your home, though it kind of is. It's very upsetting, actually, and, and, and annoying, but you know it's not your real home. You're going to somewhere else. And instead of waiting for a real estate agent to tell me where to go and how it's going to look, as citizens of heaven, there's a glorious new future that's going to come from a saviour. Citizens of heaven are awaiting a glorious future that comes from a really wonderful saviour. What sort of saviour is Jesus? Well, look at the text. It says he's a saviour from a destiny that leads to destruction. He's a saviour from the God of my own desires. He's a saviour from the glory that's small and shameful. But then it says he's a saviour who's powerful. A saviour who'll bring everything under his control. And he's a saviour who will bring renewal. Citizens of heaven eagerly await a renewed body. Very interesting motivation for living a mature life and imitating others is that you're going to get a new body. And it makes sense given the citizen of heaven language, doesn't it? If you're a citizen, it means you have to have a body to belong to that particular place. If you had no body, you're not a citizen anymore. And so Paul says that part of belonging to Jesus is the importance of having a body to live in, in his kingdom, as a citizen of his kingdom. Remarkable. You will have a body in heaven. Because when Jesus rose, he kept his body, didn't he? He didn't take it off. He'll never take it off, actually. Philippians 2. Uh, he'll rule and reign and everyone will gather around him 
in his body. His body's in really good nick, far better than mine or yours. It's a gloriously transformed body because it passed through death, came out the other side to life. And so our bodies will undergo the same transformation. Right now, they're lowly. That means they're fragile, frail, small, squashy, sick of sin. You feel that, I'm sure. They're not very durable, our bodies, but they're very complex, and they're a reason to give great thanks and praise to God for, and they're really valuable in God's eyes, actually. So much so that God has really big plans for your body to transform it to be like Jesus' glorious body. What will our bodies look like? Well, it'll be a body fit to live at a citizen of heaven. That means you might not get a flat stomach, more hair, or better running legs, but you can be guaranteed of this, it'll be perfectly equipped to serve Jesus with, whatever that looks like. And while our bodies will be different, it'll also be you, because Jesus was recognizable in his new body, even though it had capabilities that we currently lack. We can also say our bodies will be brought under the rule and reign of Jesus perfectly, along with everything else, his power, Paul says, enables to bring everything under his control, and that includes your body. Now, hearing that your body will be brought under the reign and rule of Jesus probably does not initially make you think of freedom, dignity. But that's not true with Jesus, because remember, he was the one who bled for us in his body, took all our sin and evil on his sinless, holy body, who saves our bodies to live at a citizen of heaven, which means that view of the body and the future is the greatest, most dignifying, glorious way we could ever view ourselves. Which is exactly what Paul wants us to see. God in his kindness gives us people to look to. God in his kindness gives us a person to wait for. So church, look at where you're headed. Let's keep maturing. Let's follow those who breathe in the air of heaven. Let's reject the examples of those who reject Jesus. Let's do so with tears in our eyes. And let us honestly look at ourselves, living up to and celebrating by God's grace what we've already attained. Because let's look at where we're heading and let's keep going. And I pray you join me this week and every day after that to that end. And let's be a church that does that too. Let's pray and then we're going to sing again to our wonderful, glorious God. Father, thank you that you give us a sure, concrete future you give us the certainty of a saviour who is wonderful and true, and here and now as we live, we have others to kick around and do life with. Imperfect, flawed, yes, but creatures and humans of your grace. So help keep our eyes fixed upon you, help us run the race with those around us, and help us to wait well for the person of Jesus to return, where you will rule and reign and bring everything under your control, transform our bodies, and live as a citizen of heaven. May this be your good goal and may we pursue that wholeheartedly, Lord. Amen.